It wasn't my responsibility to change who I was, to make them be more comfortable with my disability. From the team behind Stylist, this is Nobody Told Me. Stories of life, love, grief, success and failure and the lessons learned by the women who survived to tell the tale. I'm your host, Lisa Smazarski, Editor-in-Chief of Stylist. In today's episode, we're joined by the remarkable Sinead Burke. Sinead is a teacher, writer, broadcaster and campaigner and is on a mission to change the fashion industry from within. Sinead, who has also spoken at the White House and the World Economic Forum, is a little person. The term she favours when referencing her achondroplasia, the most common form of dwarfism, that means she has shorter than average limbs. Sinead grew up in a big, happy family in Dublin, Ireland, one of five children, with parents who taught her that she could do and be anything, as she took their message seriously. At just 16, Sinead was so frustrated by the exclusive nature of the fashion industry, an industry she loved and wanted to be part of, that she began a popular blog, Mini Melange. She's used her platform to challenge the lack of inclusivity in the fashion and design industries ever since, and the world has listened. Sinead is a woman who wants everyone to be heard, everyone to be included, and everyone to feel important. This is Sinead's story in her own words. My name is Sinead Burke. Nobody told me that turning down surgery as a child would be one of the best decisions that I've ever made. It would be relatively frequent that I'd be in the playground or the yard at school and children would point me out and say, why are you so small? And I remember being told to say, I'm just like my dad. He's a little person too. And I think I was probably four then. I mean, on my first day of school, I introduced myself by saying, hi, my name is Sinead. I have a chondroplasia. That's A-C-H-O-N-D-R-O-P-L-A-S-I-A. I think particularly when my dad and I were together, we were the centre of attention. You know, it was rare to see one little person out in the open, but seeing two together kind of multiplied the attention that you would receive and maybe the responses that you would get from that, whether it was humour or people making you feel less than. But yeah, it was so much a part of my normality. I've never known what it's like to not be exhibited to the world around me for their public discourse or for their humor or for their dialogue about who I am and what I get to be and you know that wasn't just about me but it was about my family as a whole. I grew up in a village in the middle of Dublin. I had a really wonderful childhood where I knew that genuinely anything was possible and even though as a disabled woman my method by which I could achieve things might be slightly different to everybody else that didn't have to nor should it ever undermine my ambitions and dreams. I grew up being encouraged to have a voice and to have opinions and perspectives and to challenge the world around me. As I got a little bit older, I wanted to defend myself. I wanted to defend my dad. I wanted to speak out against what it was they were doing to make us feel less. And I think my parents were advocates for me before I was an advocate for myself. And they taught me the language and the approach, but also gave me an understanding of just how exhausting it is to fight every battle and how 
there are moments where, yes, you can challenge people because they're being unkind in public, but what's the risk that that comes to you? What's the next step after you say something? How much of a risk are you putting yourself in and your own safety? And what are the ways in which you can create change that are broader? How can you do it through education? How can you do it through, I don't know, trying to change society and culture as a whole, which sounds enormous of a task to give to a child, but it was a constant conversation that we had. I can't remember when I first heard about the surgery. It was a, a limb lengthening surgery and in many ways kind of does exactly what it says on the tin. But I had been in doctor's appointments and medical appointments from, gosh, the time I was born all the way up until I was 18. And I think it was one of those doctors and experts who kind of first brought it up. We decided to kind of have a conversation with the doctors and with the hospital as a whole. And I remember they showed me the process. So what would happen is that if you were choosing to do your legs first, that your bones would be fractured deliberately. And that there was lots of different ways in which they could grow the bone, but kind of the way in which it was offered to me was that there was this kind of cage that would exist around the lower part of your leg. And pins from the cage would then be inserted through the skin and into the bone. And there would be fixtures on this cage that you could twist and turn and you'd have to twist it a specific measurement a couple of times a day so that over a significant duration the fracture of the bone would begin to grow and that the gap in between the fracture would create an opportunity for new bone to grow and I remember being told that it would give me potentially three to six inches additional in height. Now, as a little person, I am particularly small for a little person. So I'm one of the smallest of all of my friends who has a chondroplasia, which is my condition. And it wasn't necessarily that it was encouraged by the doctors. I was just being given the information that was needed and being told that if I was to consider this, now would be the right time to do so. And my parents just said, you know, you need to make this decision for you. I remember exploring it and thinking, gosh, if I was six inches taller, I might not need the light switches lowered in my house when I buy one or when I live in one. I might not need to worry about having to ask for help all the time. And I remember kind of thinking that the one thing it really would make easier is that with the additional height, maybe it would be less obvious that I would be a little person to strangers and to other people. And as such, maybe that notion of being the centre of attention would be lessened. Maybe people would be less curious. Maybe people would ask me fewer questions. Maybe there would be not as many opportunities in which people would make fun. Maybe I would kind of fit in more, if that made sense, because I would skew closer to whatever society's definition of normal presented as or looked like. I think I just realized that in terms of making friends, in terms of being 11, that it wasn't my fault if people made fun of me because I was a little person. It wasn't my responsibility to change who I was, to make them be more comfortable with my disability. It wasn't my responsibility to alter my physical body in order to experience the world a little bit easier, particularly in public that I think those ambitions that my parents had set for all of us when I was younger, that notion that like we shouldn't change people in order to fit in, 
we should change the world to fit with the spectrum of diversity of people that exists. And I remember kind of just flippantly talking to my parents one evening and saying, I've decided about the surgery. And they were like, oh, right, go on. And I said, well, I've realized that the only reason I'd be getting it done is to make friends easier. And here's the thing. If um, my friends don't like me because I'm a little person, that's that's on them. That's not on me. So, yeah, I'm going to choose to be me. I'm going to not have the surgery. And, yeah, I stuck with it. And I said, no, thanks. And, you know, the surgery wasn't for me. But that doesn't mean it's not for others. I think it's a really personal choice. I had no idea if I would change my mind. If, you know, I would wake up the next day and feel differently. Or if... I would spend the next five years happy and comfortable with myself and then immediately regret it and missed out on the opportunity to make a difference to me. But nobody had told me that declining that surgery would be one of the best things I ever did for myself as a child or as an adult. So many of my childhood photographs Two of my sisters and I, we are dressed the same in all childhood photos, which we now give out about. But my mother says that we asked to be dressed the same. I'm suspicious of her motives, but it also wouldn't surprise me if we demanded that we all have the same outfits. And maybe that's where it started. Maybe it was the idea that I knew that my sisters were different to me or that I was different to them. But through clothes, we could present ourselves as this unifying force, all dressed the same. And maybe that's something that I wanted to carry with me as I was older. Now, as we got a bit older, we had no interest in dressing the same as one another. Our tastes are wildly different. But I think it was such an important moment that taught me holistically that clothes could shape culture. They could give us an opportunity to present ourselves in a way in which we had a choice over. I kind of had a passing interest in it until I went shopping with my sister. She was, gosh, probably 16, maybe I was 18. And I remember talking to her on the way in to the shopping centre. It was the first time, I think, that we had gone together on our own. So there was a big responsibility on me being the eldest sister to mind her, look after her, make sure she didn't spend too much money and just figure it out. I remember kind of talking to her, trying to prepare her for the things that she would need help with, trying to make her think about the different parts of the shop that I had learned in terms of my experiences And she didn't really say anything. I remember we went to the store and I just watched her kind of glide through the shop, being able to reach everything. I think what undermined it all was in the sense that my sister didn't really care about clothes. She didn't care about fashion in a way, not in the way that I did. It was just something that she had to do and had to wear. And I remember thinking, that's not fair. It's not fair that she doesn't know that that dress is supposed to be from Stella McCartney from two seasons ago. And she can just buy it and wear it and leave the shop wearing it and doesn't need anybody to take it down off the rail for her. Fashion and clothes in particular was this incredible vehicle to challenge the assumptions and the biases that other people had about me because it gave me an opportunity to accentuate my disability to put a spotlight on it or as this cloak of invisibility and I could veil myself from the world. It gave me choice about how other people could or would look at me. I was shopping in the children's department 
I was kind of wearing shoes that had bows and Velcro and butterflies, even though I was just about to go to university. Or if I wanted to shop in the women's department, everything had to be altered. It would take time for that alteration process to happen. It would be an additional cost. But I also had to learn not what I wanted to wear, but what I could wear. You know, most of the pattern would be cut off the sleeve if I wore that jacket. And, you know, the dress, I would lose most of the fabric and I would lose the hemline. It would be terrible. And I think those two things together, understanding the kind of design of the fashion industry in terms of even the physical store, but how the product offering too minimized my agency. And I just kind of thought to myself, this has to change and maybe I should be part of it. I had always wanted to be a teacher and I was lucky. I passed my exams, I got my place, and I started in university. One of the assignments in our kind of computer course was to create a blog. So I wrote about Kate Blanchett wearing Givenchy Couture to the Oscars, and how it was really important as people that we understood the legal terminology around couture, and that it was handmade, and it was an art form. And that blog sat there for quite a long time, but I was having more and more conversations at home about the fashion system and my mother would say to me that's lovely Sinead but really is there anybody else in the entire world that you can talk to about this because we love you but we don't love this (laughs) and the internet gave me this incredible space where it didn't matter what I looked like what mattered was my thoughts opinions arguments and ideas and it was a corner of the world that I could architect to suit me and my interests and Yeah, I realised really quickly that whilst I was writing about feeling excluded from the fashion industry because I was a little person, because I was disabled, I really genuinely believed that my experience was unique. I kind of thought that I was the only one that the fashion industry forgot. And over time, as the audience of the blog grew, began to realise that actually it's most of us that fashion excludes. And that, I think, was the engine for my advocacy work within the industry as a whole. I left university and I began teaching. I loved it, but simultaneously the work in fashion was continuing. I was writing a blog at night at the weekends whenever I could. And I received an opportunity to do a TED talk about living in a world not designed for you. And I thought they were bananas. I said, I'm, I don't know anything about design. I'm a teacher with a bit of an interest in fashion, but I, this, this isn't for me. Thanks so much. You'll have to find somebody else. And they said, no. Your lived experience gives you an expertise and a different perspective through which you view the world. It's really important that designers and the industry at large are challenged by that viewpoint. It's probably the most nerve-wracking thing that I've ever done. I remember being at the dress rehearsal the night before the TED Talk in New York. I was on my own, standing on the stage and them saying, go. I got two lines in and completely forgot the whole talk. I just wanted the ground to swallow me and I said, I'm really sorry. And I went back to my hotel. I remember ringing my parents the following morning and saying, I think I need to come home. I don't think I can do this. They just encouraged me to try to give it a go. I stood on the red dot on stage and for almost 10 minutes spoke about my experience of being disabled. But how I'm not disabled because I'm a little person, but I'm disabled by design. Which is great, because design, we can change. 
And yeah, it changed my life. It wasn't long afterwards I got an email from this man called Imran Ahmed who mentioned in his email that he'd set up this company called The Business of Fashion. What Imran didn't know is that I'd been a subscriber of The Business of Fashion for probably about five years. It was really embarrassing. And I knew all too well who he was. He'd just seen my TED talk and wondered if I would be in any way interested in talking to the fashion community about how fashion affects me and what fashion needs to know about disability. I said, okay. And he said... Do you have any interest in fashion? Which is a question that I still think he regrets that he asked because I then went into this enormous monologue about all of the things that were in my head that I knew about the fashion industry and how it needed to change. And he said, yeah, I think you should probably (laughs) come and talk to us. And I did. It was just announced that I was going to speak at the Business of Fashion Voices conference and I got an email from this woman called Alice who worked at a company called Burberry at the time. And she said... I've seen you're speaking at this conference. Do you want to wear Burberry? And I emailed her back and said, listen, thank you very much, but you've never dressed anybody like me before. I don't think you're going to be able to do this, or at least in the short amount of time, I think this needs more thought. And she said, no, we can make this happen. You should come in. And I did. I went to the store and we had this amazing fitting and I got to wear the most incredible military-esque jacket on stage, challenging the fashion industry to design with disabled people, not for them. And I think that was another kind of turning point in getting right into the epicentre of the fashion system. It was around that point when everything began to gather pace, where all of a sudden these conversations weren't just rhetoric, but there was an initial desire to map out how these could be made tangible, how they could be made real. And I made the decision to leave teaching, always promising that I would come back. I've been very fortunate that I've got to be the exception to the rule in so many instances. Whether that's being the first little person to be on the cover of Vogue, whether that's being the first little person to attend the Met Gala, whether that's introducing the word little person into the Irish language, I've got to be the first. My wardrobe is ridiculous. I think if teenage me could look through the custom garments that currently exist within it, she wouldn't believe it. I think in many ways, my wardrobe proves that it's possible. That if you can design a custom piece for me, there is a pathway to making that commercially available. And it may not be economical to make it as a custom model for everybody. Maybe we need to think about specific sizing or specific sleeve length or specific hem length in order to find some sort of bell curve within the customization. But it proves that there is beauty within the process of designing for different types of bodies. What I've done now is set up a company. It's called Tilting the Lens in the hope that we can literally provide a new perspective to the industry and thinking about accessibility and disabled people, not just as something that we need to consider through a lens of charity or a medical model or othering, but what are the perspectives of those individuals? What are the opportunities to think creatively about providing, yes, for the accommodations of those communities. But how can it have value to everybody? Because we will all be disabled at some point in our lives. That might be momentary because we go outside and we slip and we fall and we need to use crutches. Or maybe it's because we inherit a disability, like me. Or maybe it's because you acquire a disability later in life. Or hopefully we all get to grow old. 
So by thinking through accessibility and authentic inclusion of disabled people through this lens, we are creating a better world for everybody. So yeah, my current goal is to make change that goes way beyond me. I think there are moments when the thought occurs to me that where would I be if I'd had that surgery? And I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be doing this work. I wouldn't be talking to you because it's unlikely I would be interested in education. It's probably impossible that I'd be interested in fashion. And I wouldn't have been doing this work. I wouldn't have written a book for children because I wouldn't have felt a desire to do so. The moments that I tap into wherein just for a second I think, oh gosh, maybe these people wouldn't be making fun of me if I'd had that surgery. Maybe, you know, I'd be able to go to the shop without being kind of hassled by teenagers. Yeah, there's those moments of joy that I might be able to experience, but gosh, everything else would be different. And those experiences, even though negative, I'm not grateful for them, but they've shaped me too. They've made me who I am. They've made me resilient. They've made me understand the importance of advocacy and education. And whilst I wish there were less of those moments and that they didn't exist at all, I'm still really glad that I didn't change who I was all those years ago, because that would mean that I wouldn't be proud of who I am now and what I've been able to accomplish since. But I am. I'm incredibly proud of the impact that I've been able to make, whether that's on my parents, on my siblings, on myself, or in some marginally bigger way, I'm not sure, but I'm really proud of all that I've been able to do and how I've been able to grow as a person, metaphorically. You're listening to Stylist Nobody Told Me. I'm your host, Lisa Smazarski, and you've been listening to the story of Sinead Burke. We're told constantly, be kind. In fact, it's been a huge theme of this year. Artwork, adverts, products, social media influencers, and even themed kindness days shout about the importance of kindness. And most of us admittedly nod our heads, press the like button, and buy the slogan t-shirt. Because kindness, inclusivity and ensuring everyone feels that they belong has become one of the lessons of the past decade. That we won't be measured by things or achievements or experiences, but by our behaviour to others. This kindness allows us to celebrate our differences and not aspire to homogenisation in any way. I have always been a big believer in the power and strength of kindness in all of its forms. Kindness was once grouped into the nice bucket. It was seen as a little bit wet. But now we can understand it is the strongest of words and acts. Being kind means seeing past yourself, putting someone else first, and using your empathy to look at the world through someone else's eyes. If you can see that, and if you can give someone the benefit of the doubt rather than assuming the worst, you have the power to make real change, both for yourself and those around you. 
Kindness is a principle I've lived by for a long time. And when asked many years ago for my number one piece of advice when climbing the career ladder, my answer was be kind. I genuinely believe this is more important than anything else you can do. But despite this public collective embracing of kindness, the world is still often quite cruel. Many learn this hard truth way before they've even learned to speak. As children, we quickly realize that any difference, be that physical, financial, racial, or cultural, is an opportunity for others to be unkind or to exclude. And those cruel words sit deep within us, often forever, and leave an indelible mark on our psyche. What struck me from Sinead's story is that this is so often born from ignorance of the unconscious bias we all have when looking at the world through our own eyes or from our own place of privilege. Classrooms, workplaces, shops and even societies, the way we design our world and the objects in it, so often ignore the existence of people who could be considered different. So whether conscious or not, not showing someone they belong in a space through representation or consideration is a way of saying, we don't want you, you don't belong. That message is one that so many minority groups have to listen to every day. One of the things I absolutely loved about Sinead's story is that she realizes that if she had tried to normalize herself through the operation, her life would have taken a different path. She wouldn't be the tour de force she is today, the powerhouse of change that she's become, because she wouldn't have stood out. She would not have challenged the norm and not be part of a movement changing the world for the better. It seems what makes her different physically has driven the most exceptional attributes personally. Through this, she has maintained her desire to educate the world so that hopefully in generations to come, no one feels the burden of being different in the way that she and so many people before her have felt. Sinead's story is a reminder that it's our duty to be kind and inclusive to every person in the room, whoever we or they are. We have to ensure no one is ignored or forgotten about because they don't fit a mould that should never have existed in the first place. Sinead's is a story of change and hope because while she's in the world driving change from within, we all live in hope of living in a more inclusive and kinder world. I want to say a big thank you again to Sinead for sharing her story today on Nobody Told Me. Her new book, Break the Mould, How to Take Your Place in the World, is out now. We have a wealth of brilliant women coming your way throughout this series, so please do subscribe to make sure you don't miss Bryony Gordon on how she's learned there's no shame in being sad, beauty influencer Angele on why she has to date in secret, and presenter Vic Hope on why burnout forced her to find acceptance with being alone. We'd also love to hear your comments and suggestions of the stories you'd love to hear, so please leave these in the podcast store or DM us on the Stylist Instagram. You can find even more inspiring stories and life lessons on our website, stylist.co.uk. Thank you for listening to Nobody Told Me.